Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, this morning we uh, changed some things up a little bit on you, and that is entirely my fault. I am I'm, I'm sick this morning, and uh, if you've ever had the joy of, uh, of a, a migraine headache, and the feeling of a jackhammer uh, going to work on your head. Uh, that's how I feel this morning. So we're, um, I didn't think I'd be able to make it through a, a whole worship set of singing songs and then preach. I thought better to get, it, get on with it early versus trying to fight through it uh, later. So um, if you want to turn with me over to Luke chapter 20, I have a little bit of a shortened message this morning. We're, we are, there's still some great things ahead for us this morning. We're going to... Uh, Give an offering for Hope Church, and um, still have some songs ahead of us to sing. And the good news for us is that God's word is living and active. It's not really that dependent upon the messenger, because the message itself has the power, and the Holy Spirit has promised to. Um, bless the, the reading and proclamation of his word, regardless of the messenger or his um, strength at the moment. So praise God for that. All right, let's, let's look at Luke chapter 20, and we're going to um, begin in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 19. And then we'll pray together. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants who went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat, beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. God, we ask that you would speak through your word to us. You would give us understanding. God, give us the gift of faith to not just be hearers of your word, but doers, that we would receive your word with a good heart. And there would be a a produce of righteousness in us that you would produce. So Lord Jesus, I ask personally, Lord, give me strength. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, at the beginning of this, we're going to look at first verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to move on to verses 9 through 19, but we're going to spend a little time first in verses 1 through 8. And here at the beginning of the parable, we see that Jesus has just entered Jerusalem by great fanfare and celebration, and then he goes immediately to the temple. As he comes into the temple, he begins to to clear out the money changers and the sellers of, of, of animals and just begins to, in a sense, tear the place apart. And as he begins to do this, it really begins to upset a few people. Because religious leaders, those who had kind of the monopoly on the temple, began to really become upset because they were the ones who were making all the money from the selling and exchanging of, of money and animals. And so Jesus begins to drive them out. But Jesus doesn't stop there. As, as if that wasn't enough, Jesus begins to set up shop for himself, not selling anything, but begins to preach and share God's word with people. So he just kind of blew out the people that shouldn't have been there and really showing up on and what they thought was their territory. He doesn't stop there. He continues to go on and begin to teach there as well. So Jesus really begins to, if you will, get in their face in this moment. As if the driving out of all the people wasn't enough, he begins to teach on their territory and their mind. So Jesus really begins to declare God's word in such a way that people, as we've heard, Jesus begins to declare God's word to people in a way they never heard before. He teaches as one with authority. And so the leaders who have been really shamed by Jesus and put in their place by Jesus, they want to know, by whose authority are you doing these things? Who, who said that you could come and, and clear the temple out? Who said that you can show up and teach day after day in the temple? Who said that you can kind of like put your stakes in the ground and say, no, I'm setting up shop here today, boys. Who said that you can do this? And so Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what. I'll answer your question if you answer mine. John the Baptist, whose authority, who, who, who said that he could do what he was doing? By whose authority was he doing these things? Was it from God or was it from man? And the religious leaders knew, the religious leaders knew the testimony that John had given about Jesus. Right? If we remember back in, in even the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sins. 
There's a profession from John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah. And everyone knew this. And so if, they, if the religious leaders were to say, well, John's baptism was from God, then they would be, by implication, saying that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they knew they didn't want to say that. But there was this also this other side of the, of the, of the story where if, if they said his baptism was from man, and John was just a crazy person, they knew there would be an uprising from all the people because the people believed that John was a prophet. And so they had to, in a sense, make a decision to not make a decision. So they said, you know what? We don't know. But really they did. They were too afraid of what the people thought to do anything about it. And so Jesus simply says, you know what? Then I'm not going to tell you by whose authority I do these things either. And really, by simply just asking the question, he shuts them up. Does a great job of really putting them in their place again and showing them for the incompetent leaders that they were. But looking at this, as I thought about this and prayed about it this week, this question of Jesus' authority, who does Jesus say that he is to say the things that he does? This question of Jesus' authority is a question that people have been asking for 2,000 years. Ever since Jesus showed up, there's this question of who does Jesus think that he is to say what he does? Who does Jesus think that he is to come in and just make the statements that he makes? Who is Jesus to tell me what to do and how to live my life? Who is Jesus to, to tell me the way of salvation? Amongst all the other things that are going on in this world, who does Jesus think that he is to say those things? And so the question of Jesus' authority, although it was asked here by the, the chief priests and the leaders of the people in this time, is the same question that people have been asking for 2,000 years. This question is not new. It's been asked continually since this was first asked. And so, as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I've got to ask myself the question, does he have the authority in my life? Does he truly have the authority in my life to say, that, to say the things that he does? Or are there times and areas of my life where I say, look, you've got so much authority, Jesus, but I don't know about this area of my life. Look, I think I know better than you do. Now, we wouldn't really say that at times. We wouldn't say, Jesus, by whose authority do you say these things? Or who do you think that you are to tell me how to live my life and how to surrender to you? We would not right say that. But by our actions, we live it. And I think one of the areas for me particularly, and I think for maybe for many of us, is the area of my feelings. And so I respond out of my feelings. How do I feel today? Do I feel like loving my wife and, and serving my family? Well, I don't feel like serving my family today, so guess what? I'm not going to. I'm going to try to hedge. I'm going to try to protect my own time. Knowing that Jesus Christ has called me to lay my life down for my family his authority to say that to me for my life. But yet when the time comes for me to lay my life down and submit to his authority, what do I do? Well, I take it easy. I don't want to do those things. I don't want to surrender my life. I don't want to live my life in such a way that causes me to have to give up my free time and my energy and everything else that goes along with it to serve my family. And so in that moment, 
What I'm doing, though, is I'm surrendering, in a sense, submitting my authority to my feelings. And I wonder how many of us, if we would think back over the last time we got in a conflict with our spouse or someone in our family or a friend, the, the moments of our response, if that response was one of submission to Christ's authority, or is it one submission to what I felt like doing in the moment, right? Michelle and I got into a, a little conflict this week. Yes, we get into conflict sometimes. And, um, and so, well, we're in church, so I'll say it was a difference of opinions. But um, I'm just kidding. We got into a conflict this week, and I think the way that I responded to this conflict was one of just surrendering to my feelings. I don't feel like laying my life. I don't feel like surrendering. I don't feel... So guess what? I surrendered and really gave the authority to my feelings over and above Jesus Christ. And so this question then comes to play, Jesus, by whose authority are you telling me what to do? Because I don't see it that way. It would be much easier for me in this moment to surrender and really let it out and say the things I want to say and, and just unleash on this situation. And so for us, the question is, is it Christ's rule in our life or is it my own rule? And I think it's easy to say, as Jesus' disciple, it's easy to say, oh, I surrender to Christ. But in the moment, in those moments of conflict, in those moments where, where sin is creeping at my door, in those moments, do I surrender myself to another authority? Have I given myself to a different authority? So that's the question. Have I fully surrendered to Jesus' authority? Now let's move on to, to verse 9. And in this, we, he begins to share the parable of the wicked tenants. And so there's a couple of different things going on in this. And sometimes as we read a parable, what's, what's been common in the past is to take and make the different kind of objects in the parable to mean other things. It's called allegory. So we could say, well, um, let's say the, the good Samaritan who was injured on the road, we can say, well, he was injured and it was... The, the high priest shows that that would be the, the pastors and then the, the, this, you know, the innkeeper is the church and the donkey is the Holy Spirit. And we can kind of allegorize and just kind of make up various things to make the parable make sense. But we can't really read parables that way very often unless Jesus really says so clearly, okay? Because we can fall in all kinds of folly and people have got really messed up doing those things. But here in this parable, I believe there's a, is an Old Testament kind of um, working out of, of who the different elements are. So we have a vineyard, we have tenants, we have servants who've come to reach the people. There's a son of the, of the, the vineyard owner that comes who is, who is uh, killed. And so briefly, I just wanted to share a couple of things, thoughts about the wicked tenants. So the vineyard, we see from the very beginning... The vineyard, I believe, represents God's people and His Word. And I only say that because we look back in Isaiah chapter 5, there's a, there's a precedent in the Old Testament for Israel and God's Word being this vineyard. And so Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, we read this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. 
And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so there's a bit of a, an understanding that this vineyard was Israel, the nation. Okay? But not only that, but there was these tenants. And the leaders in verse 19 realized that Jesus was talking about them as the tenants, and that is why they became so enraged. They became so upset because they understood that Jesus, it says in verse 19, was talking about them. And so the tenants were the guys who had taken the servants and had kicked them out and had beat them and killed the son. And so the leaders of the people understood that Jesus was talking about them. But not only that, but there was also this element of the servants. And these were the prophets who were sent by God to the people. If you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, I'm going to briefly read this. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 14 through 16, read this. All the officials, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people until there was no remedy. And so the, the servants in this parable were the, the prophets who had come to them to declare God's word to them, to present to them the way that God has made for them to go, but it was rejected. Then we also see the son whom the owner sends, and that is Jesus Christ. The owner being God himself, the owner, the creator of the vineyard. And so I want to look at a couple different things inside of this parable. Number one, we see this. We see human corruption. We see sin at its most inglorious account. There, here, the owner of the vineyard is sending the, the servants to collect some of the goods Back in the day, they would, they would do this where the, the owner would, would let out the land for either a percentage of the crops or a set amount of money. And so the owner is now sending the, to the people, the servants, to collect the goods. And their thinking is, well, here's what we'll do. We'll take the owner's servants and we'll beat them and we'll send them away. Like that's going to do any good. Like that's going to, the owner's going to say, oh, well, they beat my servant. I don't. I'm not going to collect from them anymore. No, so the, the, the owner again sends another servant to collect the goods. This one they beat again. And then another servant, and this one they beat again. And then finally the owner says, I'm going to send my son. And the tenants say, well, check this out. Here's what we're going to do. We'll murder the son, and then the, then the vineyard will be ours. Like that makes any sense whatsoever. But here we go. This, this, this sin and the corruption in their own hearts has clouded their thinking and understanding in such a way that they're completely irrational in what they begin to do. And this is the way that sin always works in our life. Sin never leads us to rational thinking. 
It always leads us to separation from God and irrational behavior. Thinking that this is the best way forward. Here's what we're going to do. I've devised a plan. And when it's in rejection of God's plan, it is always for our destruction. We choose the path of destruction when we begin to do that. God's ways are good and pleasing and right. When we choose any other way, it leads to destruction. So here we see the the people in this story making decisions full of corruption, deciding to go their own way. But secondly, we also see this at work, is God's enduring patience. It's unbelievable in this story that the owner of this vineyard would, would, would patiently endure with these rebels, with these people who are destroying his servants, who are stealing and robbing from him. He would patiently endure and continue to send servant after servant after servant. And we see this throughout the, the history of God's word. God continually to send prophets to declare his word to people over and over and over again, patiently enduring with people's sinfulness and rejection of his word. It's amazing how God continues to do this today. Even in our sin, even in our rebellion against God, God is patiently enduring with us for a season. God continues to bring his word to us over and over and over again. I'm amazed by this in my own life. When I think when I am when I'm on a path of folly, when I am disobeying God, how God, his Holy Spirit begins to convict me and begins to point the right way to me over and over and over again. It's God's mercy to us. And I feel like some of us here need to hear this. Because God, through his word, continues to bless and refresh his church even when we've missed the mark. That is God's mercy to us. Even when we've really screwed things up, God continues to bring his word to us. God continues to speak to us. God continues to reach out to us. God continues to meet us right where we are at to bring us back to himself again. That is the goodness and mercy of God to us. Now, number three, that's for a season. Because number three, what we also see in this is God's severe judgment of obstinate sinners. There is, a, there is a reality here of God's judgment against sinners that is unmistakable. He doesn't say, well, you've killed the son, no problem. We'll just move on, maybe I'll send another son or do something else. He doesn't say that. He says he's going to come and he's going to destroy those tenants and give the vineyard away to others. To which the people understood what he was saying because they said, surely not. Surely you wouldn't do that. Surely you wouldn't take what you've given and have, have entrusted to people and give it to, other, give it to someone else. He said, absolutely. That is what's going to take place. Because in the end, God has the final say. The wicked tenants do not have the final say. The wicked tenants don't have the decision-making power to say, well, here's how it's going to shake out in the end. God says, I have the final say. I'm the one who makes the decision about my vineyard. I'm the one who owns the vineyard, who's planted the vineyard, who's caused the vineyard to grow, and I'm the one who's going to have the final say with, with the things that I've entrusted you with. I have the final say. 
And so as we know in, from history, the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD was completely annihilated and destroyed. Women and children killed and murdered. The town completely burned to the ground. The temple destroyed. God had t- finally taken away the things that he said he would. Now I want us to read this because in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, I want us to understand something because as we can look at this and think, well, that's fine for those guys back then and they really missed it. God also has a way in dealing with us today which is also sometimes in our minds quite severe. Romans 22, verse 11, Romans 11, verse 22, I'm sorry. Romans 11, verse 22. We read this. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. He speaks... Paul is speaking to the church as he writes this. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to the church. He says, continue in God's kindness. Continue in God's kindness. Because as we know God to be a loving and kind and merciful God, because he is, God is also just, and he's righteous, and he's holy, and he is a consuming fire. He doesn't allow people to remain in their folly. He doesn't allow people to remain in their sin. He comes to discipline those he loves. And his discipline can be quite severe. Now at the very end of this, Jesus says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He's speaking about himself. Saying this, if you come against Jesus, if you go against Jesus, you will fail. Those who fight against Jesus, those who push against Jesus, those who reject Jesus in any way will be destroyed. There's no, when you battle against Jesus, when you fight against Jesus, there is no hope for winning. There's no hope for you to persevere against Jesus. He is the cornerstone. And when you fall on the cornerstone, you will be destroyed. And when that cornerstone falls upon you, it will crush you. He's given a very real and serious charge to the people who are listening to him, saying, look, do not war against me. Listen to me. I have the way of life and of truth. And in me, you can find hope in life. And so I want to close with this. And I feel like this morning, it's a bit bit of a warning. A warning for us. Jesus has made the way of life known to us through his, through his proclamation of who he was. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is our hope for redemption, hope for forgiveness. There is hope as he continues to send the prophets, continue to bring us his word, as he continues to reveal himself to us. There is a real hope for us to turn from our sins and to turn to him for our hope, for our life, for forgiveness. And I feel this morning God is giving us a warning. Jesus is the way. 
Is there anything in our lives that we need to surrender to Him? Is there any area of our life where we have chosen to surrender and submit to what we view as a different authority? Maybe there's an area of conflict in your marriage. Maybe there's a pattern of sin in your life that you say, look, there's an area that I can't release to Jesus. There's an area that I can't let go of. I am surrendering myself to someone or something else. And because of that, I've submitted to a different authority. And I feel like just as a way of warning to us, do not persist in doing this. There are serious consequences for us to continue to walk in disobedience to God's revealed word to us. And as we continue on in either patterns of sin or relationships that we shouldn't, that are broken, that we continue to persist and fight and argue, demand our way, God is calling us to surrender to Him. God is calling us to submit ourselves to Him again and to submit to His ways. What areas of our life do we need to surrender? And so we're going to close. And I want us to take seriously this call. I want us to consider what is it that Jesus Christ is calling us to and to really wholeheartedly surrender and repent before Him, whatever that may be, whatever that looks like, that we would surrender and repent before Him. So Lord Jesus, we come before You today. And God, I just want to thank You for helping me get through this morning. God, I pray for us as a church. Lord, that you would convict, that you would reveal to us the areas we need to repent. And God, I pray that you would give us the grace necessary to turn to you and follow you and surrender and submit to your authority in our lives. Jesus, thank you that you've made a way. Thank you for your patient endurance in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is greater than our corruption. And God, that we can escape. We can escape destruction by trusting in you. Jesus, we will not come against you. We will surrender ourselves to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to encourage us. You know, as we, we're going we're gonna to sing some songs yet, this would be a great moment for us as we sing just, just to surrender our lives again to Jesus afresh. To lift our hands up to him and say, Lord, this is the area of my life that I need to surrender to you. This is the area of my life that I've submitted to other authorities and not listened and surrendered to your authority. And ask God to cleanse us and forgive us and to give us strength. Amen. As Johnny was sharing, um, the Lord laid on my heart that there are certain people in this church who are playing with sin. It's not so much that you've really given into it, but it's something that you just play with. And it's like that fish that has its hook in its mouth and still thinks it's free and it's swimming away. And all of a sudden, you know, the good fisherman knows when to yank it and to catch that fish. Um, I, I think with Johnny's word today and what the Lord laid on my heart to come and share is that um, maybe you're not really into the sin, but you're just playing with it. It's a little play thing. And Scripture says that we're supposed to hate sin, abhor 
sin. Walk away from it. Flee from it. And I would caution you as strongly as I can today, do not play with sin because you'll be like that fish with the hook in the mouth that one day it's, it's revealed and it's caught. And um, deal with it today. Deal with it now.